And uh, great to have you joining us online if you're watching through the live stream. I've got a a few announcements. Um, The first is uh, we're looking forward to having a fellowship lunch. And uh, if you're able to help provide food for that, um, there's a sign-up list in the foyer. The second is an announcement for men. Um, You've remembered last uh, Sunday there was an announcement of the men's bowling event on the 21st of February. Um, Well, James would really like to hear from us if we're going so that he can make sure he books up the right number of spaces. So if you could do that, that would be absolutely great. Uh, The third thing I have to say is um, probably... Uh, a bit, I don't know. I don't know whether it's a bit more important or not than the other two. Uh, but those of you who've been um, looking on the news will have seen the disaster that's happened in Turkey because of the earthquake. And some of you may well know that the church in Turkey is a very persecuted small church. There's very few Christians and uh, they are very much a minority in that country. Yet, we were encouraged to hear news of them through James and Rachel in Cyprus, who've got a lot of contacts, of how the Christians were going with the little they had to help try and meet the needs of their neighbours. And um, one of the things that we feel it would be really good for us to do is to partner with them, both in praying for them, and in giving them resources so that they can help their neighbours and they can help the Christians who've suffered so much in that that devastating earthquake. So, if you'd like to give, um, you can either put a cheque in an envelope marked earthquake in one of the boxes, or the bank details are on the board there, so you can um, give money with the, the bank details. So it would be great if we're able to join with our brothers and sisters there in helping relieve the suffering and also helping them to share the love of Jesus in a powerful way. One of the great privileges we have is singing praise to our great God. And uh, we're thinking about how amazing he is in this first song. So let's join and sing, Who has held the oceans in his hand?
Well, many of you will know that um, there's been a lot of work and a lot of anticipation um, going towards the uh, Young People's Conference that took place yesterday. And I thought it would be good for us to have a, a, a few of the highlights, so I've asked uh, Joe to share them with us. Um, so yes, yeah, so we had a fantastic um, day yesterday at the youth conference. We had over 80 young people and their leaders um, here today, here with us, which was really amazing. Um, people from various local churches, some from slightly further afield, which was lovely. Um, we had a guy called Richard Arnold speaking. Um, he comes from Hove, um, and he was really speaking on the topic of Jesus wins or the supremacy of Christ. Um, he was speaking from Colossians 1 and Revelation 1. He taught us a new word, um, the new word was habvodge, and really that stands for having a big view of Jesus. Um, and that was really one of the main thrusts of what he was saying, was just wanting us to really all have a really big view of Jesus. Um, just a couple of things that stood out for me in what he said. Um, he said how very often we have our own versions of Jesus. We might have the genie Jesus where we just ask him to do something special for us, the Christmas Jesus, um, maybe the fireman Jesus who comes and helps us in a crisis. Um, but Rich pointed us to the real Jesus, to the creator and sustainer of the world, um, to a glorious Jesus and to a reconciling Jesus. Um, and he also encouraged us um, in that so often the reason that we don't have a big view of Jesus is because our view of other things is too big and we make other things too important. And he was just encouraging us that um, the worship of Jesus is not to be shared with anything or anyone else. Um, and just in session two, um, he pointed us to the glorious Jesus in Revelation as those beautiful images um, of Jesus in that first chapter of Revelation, reminding us that we should tremble um, at that Jesus, um, but also that he's a Jesus who is close. And those of you who know um, Revelation 1 know that um, Jesus laid his right hand on John, who was so afraid and said, do not fear. And it was just a real encouragement to the young people um, to value Jesus's opinion above everything and everyone else um, and not to fear. So do um, please pray for all the people that came yesterday. There were some that were totally from non-church backgrounds um, and some from churches where they don't have a lot of young people. So please do continue to pray. Thank you. Thanks very much, Joe. Well, we are going to pray now. And um, it seems that God has organised things so that what we're looking at today follows on very well from, uh, from what the young people were looking at. So let's pray to our glorious God. Oh Lord, we've just been singing, who has held the oceans in his hand? And we know as little children how we try and capture water in our hands and it just flows out and that's, that's not even a cup full. And yet we know that our God made every planet. Our God knows every heartbeat. We ask, Lord, that you will help us to get a bigger grasp of what you are like. Oh, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to lose the wrong preconceptions we have, the wrong images, the, the smaller God than you really are, or the 
less bothered, God, than you really are. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you care about us. You care about this world. We thank you that you are mighty and that you are powerful and that you are worthy of our worship. And, Lord, we ask that you will help us to hear your voice today. Help us to hear you speak. We pray that you'll make us listen. We pray that you will help us to worship you in a way that pleases you and to be aware of you in every part of our lives. Amen. So, um, one of the things that's difficult about reading the Bible isn't that the Bible passages are difficult but we find it difficult to identify with the situation that the people are in. So, as we come to the Bible passage today, I want you to imagine or to think as if you were in somewhere like North Korea or like Iran, where a leader who doesn't like you can kill you. If he gets out of bed the wrong day, you are at risk, because this is the culture that our Bible reading is coming into today. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 12, which is on page 920, and Herod is the absolute monarch. Herod is in control, and what he says, in his opinion, goes. So this had an impact on the church, and uh, we're going to start reading at verse 1 of chapter 12 in Acts. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak round you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out, and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel 
and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realised this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognising Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it was his, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them to with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And we're looking forward to uh, Rupert, who's a... We're very much uh, pleased to have you have you with us, um, explaining that passage to us in a little bit. After this uh, next song, uh, John Fuller is going to do the children's talk. So please, uh, if you're a child, do come down the front. But before that, we're going to acknowledge who the real King is, as we sing, "Crown Him with Many Crowns." <laughs>
That's it. Find a space. Excellent. Right, I'm going to start by asking you a question. And I know quite a lot of you, so I probably know the answer to this. How many of you think that you are wise? You think you're wise? Anybody else? Thinks that they're really wise? You think you're wise? Excellent. Well, I'm going to talk to you now about choices we can make and being wise in the choices that we make, and they're in everyday situations. Now, the first one I'm going to put up might not necessarily be for you guys at the moment, but I really want you to listen to it because I'm sure, not that too far in the future, you'll be having to make these same choices. But you guys, the younger ones up in the up the, up the top there, you probably need to listen to this more than the younger ones for this first one. So social media... Mobile phones and Facebook and WhatsApp and all sorts of things like that. Do any of you have, have that at all yet? Not yet. Well, that's good. What about you old ones up there? Most of you have it all, yeah? Yeah, I can see lots of smiling up there. As if, what's he going to say now? Well, do you make wise choices with the social media and the things that you watch on your phones, on your TVs, on your laptops, on your tablets? Do you make wise choices? Do you look at the right things? Do you speak to the right people? Do you do and make wise choices with how much time you spend on it? Because social media can be good when you want to get in contact with people that you know for good things, but at the same time, social media can be very bad for you as well. Because you can be on it for longer than what you should be. It can take you away from doing things that you should be doing. You could be getting into conversations with people and involved in things that have nothing to do with you, but because you're drawn into a social media network with people, you end up doing and saying and being involved in things that you shouldn't be. Do you make wise choices with how much time you spend on it? And talking of time, are you guys wise with your time? You think you're wise with your time? Do you spend your time wisely? How many of you here has homework at school sometimes? Yeah. Do a lot of you spend a lot of time on it? Ooh, some. You know, we should be wise, shouldn't we? If we're given certain things to do, we should make time for it. We can always make time for things that we enjoy, can't we? We can spend loads of times, for instance, when I was younger, I used to love football, like you know. I used to love playing it. I used to love watching it. And I'd spend all the time in the world to play football and watch it on TV. But when it came to my homework and stuff like that, or chores around the house, I had no time for it at all. I wasn't very wise, and I used to get in a lot of trouble over it. Do you make the right wise choice with your time? What about friends? Now, this is for all of us again. Are you wise with the friends that you choose? Yeah? Hopefully you are. Do you choose the right friends that are good for you, that are a good influence on you? Unfortunately, when I was younger, I made some really, 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 really bad choices with some friends. And I got into some serious trouble, not just at school, but when I was older as well, I got involved with the wrong friendship groups. I ended up doing some things that I shouldn't have. I was very unwise with the friendships I made. And sometimes I made friends with people because I wanted to fit in. And that was not very wise of me at all. Instead of fitting in and thinking that this is going to be good for me, it ended up making me really, really sad. Because I used to upset a lot of people And it used to make me upset afterwards when I was on my own at home and thinking about it. Do you make wise choices with the friends that you have? And it's really important when you're younger to make the right choices of friends. And I've got another one here. This is parents. 
Do you make wise choices for your parents? When your parents are asking you to do something, and they say, maybe, for instance, um, it's tea time, or it's time to have a shower, time to brush your teeth, it's bedtime. Do you listen to them and do what they say? Which is a good thing, isn't it? Because they're your parents and they know best for you. Or are you like this boy here who doesn't listen and is not wise? And what do you think would happen to this boy if he didn't listen to his parents? What do you think would happen to him? What do you think, Katie? He'd be told off. He might be sent to bed early. He wasn't making the right choice of listening to his parents. Now, do you make the right choices listening to your parents? Because ultimately, yeah, some of you do. Because ultimately, the parents want the best for you. And sometimes, I know it's hard to understand this, but parents know best sometimes. So it's good to listen to make wise choices with listening to your parents. Now, I'm going to put the next slide up now. And this was the best choice I ever made in my entire life. The best choice ever. Listening to what God had to say to me. The best choice I ever made. And I want to ask you, do you listen to what God is saying to you? Do you listen when you're in Sunday school? Do you listen when you're reading the Bible at home, maybe with your parents? Do you listen like this morning when Rupert's going to be preaching to us? Are you going to be listening to what God is saying to us? Now, when I was telling you earlier, when I made wrong choices with my friends, I got in lots of trouble... It made me feel really, really sad. made me feel really, really down. I made some terrible, terrible decisions. But when I made the right decision to follow God and to listen to him, I didn't feel bad anymore. I felt absolutely brilliant. I felt wonderful. I felt like there was a weight lifted off of my shoulder because I realised that by making the choice to follow God and to listen to what the Bible tells me, I could have an eternal life and I could have my sins forgiven me. So all those bad friendships I'd made, all the bad decisions I'd made, when I wasn't wise at all, they were all completely forgiven and forgotten about. And I knew that Jesus had done that for me. I became wise to what my sin was all about and I became wise to who Jesus is and what he came here to do. And that was the best decision I'd ever made. And I want to ask you guys, are you going to make that right decision and wise decision? Are you going to make the right choice to listen to what the Bible tells you and to listen to what God is trying to speak to you through his word? And I've got a few verses here and this is what God is teaching us. So it says in Proverbs, it says, be wise, be not wise in your own eyes and fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So you see it there? Don't be wise in your own eyes. And that means don't think that you're, you're wiser than what God is. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Listen to what God says. And this is how God tells us he's going to do it. He tells us he will instruct you and he will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now that's brilliant, isn't it? We can make a choice to follow God. But the amazing thing, if you make that choice to follow God, he will help us. He will instruct us. He will teach us. And he will teach us how to make right decisions in all the things that we do. He will make us wise. I think that's pretty brilliant, isn't it? And I've got one last one here, and it says, how can we get this wisdom? It's really simple. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. Now, this is amazing, isn't it? Everybody wants to be wise, don't they? They don't want to be silly and stupid, do they? You want to be wise? This is how you can get wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. God can give you the wisdom that you need. And he gives it generously. I think that's amazing, isn't it? Really, really good. So like I was really, really unwise when I was younger with decisions I made, 
that became wise when I trusted and listened to God. I'm going to ask you guys, are you going to make that right decision? And you guys up the top there as well, are you going to make the right decision? Are you going to be wise and listen to what God is telling you? Are you going to be wise in your own eyes, which leads to ruin and destruction? And the sad thing is, if you're not wise to what God is saying to you, ultimately, at the end of our lives, we're not going to have a choice. The choice is going to be taken away from us. If we've not got wise to what God wants us to be and wants us to follow him, the choice is taken away from us. We're either going to go to heaven, which is with God forever, which is far, far better, or we're going to go to hell and away from God for eternity. And we will not be able to make a choice once we're there to repent and turn away. But don't worry, because if you truly put your trust in Jesus, make the wise decision to put your trust in him, the eternity in heaven is fantastic, is wonderful, and it's the best, best future that any one of us could be looking forward to. So I'm going to ask you guys again, are you going to be wise and listen to God, what he wants you to do? Be wise in doing all the instructions that he gives us through his word, or are you going to be wise in your own self, which leads to ruin and destruction, which is not good, is it? Anyway, shall I just pray quickly before you go to your, back to your seats? Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you now and we thank you so much that we can have these opportunities to talk to the children. Lord, we thank you so much that they listen and they understand your word. And I pray, Lord God, that each and every single one of them here will be wise in your word, that they want to follow your instructions, they want to be wise in the decisions that they make, trusting in you. And we thank you so much that if we ask you for wisdom, you give it to us and you instruct us in the way that we should go. And we thank you so much that at the end of our lives, Lord, that choice that um, is taken away from so many who do not follow you. Lord, we can have that eternity in heaven knowing that we're going to be with you, which is far better. Amen. Okay, would you like to go back to your seats now? Thanks, John. Let's uh, carry on praying. Lord, as we come to you now, we thank you that you promise that where two or three people are gathered in your name, that you are here in the middle of us. We hear many voices, Lord. We have many pressures. We have so many inputs into our lives. But we ask now that you will help us to understand that you are on the throne that you always have been that you always will be and that one day every one of us will meet you and every one of us will have to give account of what we've done with our lives Oh Lord, I pray that you'll open our eyes. I pray that you'll give us wisdom to see things as they really are and not to come with some sort of fake self-image, but with some, some lie that we don't even believe, let alone anyone else. Oh Lord, we, we come as people who have not loved you like we should have done. And we have not loved other people like you call us to. 
And Lord, you, you know, you know what this week's been like for, for each of us. And, and we're so glad that you tell us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to clean us completely. Lord, I, I pray for those who don't want to be clean. Lord, I, I pray that you will impress on them the, the fact that they will be standing before you. That you will help them to understand what they look like. And the misery that they are going to be seeing. Oh Lord, I pray that you'll turn them from their foolish ways and back to you. And Lord, for many of us who, who, who love you, we, we know that so often we drift off, so often we make bad choices. Oh Lord, do draw us back to you. Do, do help us to ensure that you are on the throne. That the voices that we hear around us are voices we consider when they're wise voices, but are always measured against you and what your word says. Oh Lord, we pray that you will help us to have a, a grasp of the privilege of being your child, of being in your family, of having good works that you've prepared for each of us to do. Oh Lord, we thank you that you can use us and use our very little things to make a very big difference in this world. Oh Lord, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Turkey. Oh Lord, we pray that you will give them a really strong grasp of your power and your love and you will fill them with compassion for those who are suffering physically, but also those who are in darkness, those who have no hope in this world. Oh Lord, we pray that as they share practical love, they will also have opportunities to point people to the source of peace and joy and healing. Oh Lord, we we see so much that's disturbing to us in this world. So many powerful people doing things that we don't understand that are unkind and wrong. And Lord, we pray for, for those who are affected by that in a, a very real way. We pray for your people in Ukraine. Oh Lord, we ask that you will help them to have a very strong grasp of the fact that their God is on the throne and that they will be wanting to share the good news of Jesus with their fellow countrymen in this time of war. Oh Lord, there are so many countries in the world, so many problems, and we, we do bring each of them before you. And in our country, Lord, we, we ask for wisdom for our government Oh Lord, we pray that you'll have mercy in a, a country where we knew so much about you, where so much of the good that is in our country is because people have followed your ways and now for many years we've turned our back on it. Oh Lord, we pray that you'll bring us back and we pray you'll have mercy on us by giving us leaders with integrity, leaders of honesty. 
Oh Lord, we do thank you for those in government who do seek to serve the people. But we pray for more. And we pray that you'll be directing them in a good and a right way. And as the Church of England gets in the news and as we hear things that bring dishonour to your name as your word seems to be ignored by so many, oh Lord, we pray that those who are faithful to you will be able to stand for you and to know your wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that you will save the Church of England from going down bad paths. And we pray for us in our situation. Lord, we ask that you will help us to be lights in this dark world. That you will unite us in knowing you and loving you. That each of us will have a strong grasp of what it is to know you and your risen power. And that we'll be able to shine as lights in the places we go to. Oh Lord, you know some are troubled We all have troubles in different ways. Oh Lord, we pray you'll help us to comfort each other. Help us to comfort each other by pointing each other to you as well as as caring for each other practically. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have heard how you answered prayer. We thank you how we heard how you surprised your people with answered prayer. How you showed yourself to be king. And we pray that you will help Rupert as he brings your word to us in a few minutes. Oh Lord, we ask that you will take his word. And with your Holy Spirit's power that you will plant it deep within our hearts. And Lord, we pray that it will make a difference how we live on Monday, and the next day, and the next day. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can bring all our requests to you. Help us to know and trust you more, we pray. Amen. So in a minute, uh, we look forward to, to Rupert bringing God's word to us. But before that, we're going to sing, Come people of the risen King, who delight to give him praise. Let's join and see when the music starts.
Well, do turn with me in the Bible back to Acts chapter 12 and want to bring the greetings of my church in Bath, Emmanuel Church Bath, will be praying for us this morning. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. What's going on in this chapter? Well, what's always going on and has been going on from the Garden of Eden, where sin entered the world, to this day, what Satan is doing is dethroning God. Adam and Eve in the garden were invited to defy God and they were told that they could become like God. They could take his place. It's the original temptation, but it's also a universal temptation. It's what sin does in every heart in this room. That when we decide we know better than God, we are pushing him aside and saying, uh, I'm in charge of my life, thank you. We are dethroning God. So the dethroning of God is not just an ancient theme, somehow locked into Acts 12, which I hope you'll see it is, but it's actually right here. It's the story of our world. Uh, And Acts 12 is a graphic example of this dethroning. We see here Herod on the throne. That's what we're going to consider first. And then, remarkably, we'll find that all along, actually, God is on the throne. And we need that assurance this morning. Because when we look out in the world, there's plenty that seems to say it's Herod on the throne and not God. So, firstly, let's consider Herod On the throne, verse 1, we meet him, Herod the king. In verse 20, he's twice referred to as the king. Verse 21, he took his seat upon the throne. That's where kings sit. What sort of king is he? Well, he's a king out for his own gain. Out for his own gain. Verse 1, he laid violent hands on the believers. His, his family had a track record in this matter. It was his grandfather, who was Herod the Great, so-called, who tried to murder Jesus as a child in Bethlehem. His uncle, Herod Antipas, was involved in the trial of Jesus, and this Herod has the Apostle James, the brother of John, executed. Think of that. The Apostle James, one of the twelve, more than that, one of the the three, Peter, James, and John, who uh, Jesus involved in some very special uh, occasions, just the three of them. Uh, He is at the very heart of what God seemed to be doing on earth. You ever found that somebody has died who you thought so much rested on and depended upon? Well, James was one of the the leading apostles, and he was dead. Verse 2. And then, Herod hasn't finished, he arrests Peter, who has become the leader of the apostles. 
And he's clearly wanting to kill him too. Now, why? Well, verse 3 tells us, when he saw that it, that is killing James, pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, um, Herod is not out for doing what is right. He didn't sit there and say, now what is the best use I can make of this day? He was after what served his interest. And it serves his interest to parade his zeal against the church because that was popular. And so he had, he has Peter arrested, verse 3, during the days of unleavened bread. That may not mean very much to us, but it was the week after Passover, and Passover was the, the, the central festival uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, it was a time when Jerusalem would be heaving with people. Um, it was a period where you weren't actually meant to have trials or executions, so Herod was respecting that, but his plan was the a moment it was over, verse 4, to bring Peter out to the people. I see, this wasn't some private little thing. Quite the contrary, it was going to be a big public bonanza. And verse 11 suggests people were a bit excited about it. It speaks of all that the Jewish people were expecting. Uh, He was acting to please others for his own advantage. Now, that is characteristic of the world God is, where God is dethroned. It's the sort of thing we'll find ourselves doing too, if we're not careful. When you're, you're wanting advantage by pleasing people rather than wanting God's advantage. It's a motive of a million human hearts. And Satan wants to sow this in the church as well, so that we can even do good things where our motive is actually to impress people. We can preach or pray or serve uh, with half an eye on how others respond to us. Like the Pharisees, if you remember, praying in public to be seen by men. Isn't prayer a good thing? Well, not necessarily. They stopped in the streets, they stood there and prayed, everybody respectfully walked around them and thought, what a great man. That's exactly what they wanted. They had their reward, said Jesus. You see, when you do act like that, you're no better than Herod. Beware pursuing your own gain, even in the church. So, there's Herod on the throne for his own gain. That's what it's about. Secondly, by his own power. Now, Herod holds the levers of power. He has soldiers and he has prisons. And he uses his power. In verse 4, there is maximum security for Peter, as though Peter was some very dangerous terrorist. Um, There are four squads of four soldiers set to guard Peter 24 hours a day. So he has two of these soldiers in a cell all the time. Uh, And uh, he has two chains on, which almost certainly means he was chained to both soldiers. There's no chance that Peter's going to go walk about. He can't get out, and he can't move away. And as if that wasn't enough, not only was the door locked, but there were two other soldiers at the other doors, and outside was a huge, big iron gate at the entrance to the prison. You see, Herod could go to bed confident. I'm in control. 
You ever had that feeling? I got this sorted. When Herod is on the throne, he seems invincible. And you know, those who oppose the cause of Christ often seem invincible. Uh, Boko Haram and other Islamist, Islamist groups in many parts of Africa seem to attack and kill Christians apparently freely. They turn up on their motorbikes, they enter churches, and they shoot people dead. Uh, And they arrest and kill pastors and kidnap them. And nothing seems to be stopping this. In the days or places where Hitler ruled, or Stalin, or Putin today, or Xi, or Kim Jong-un, in their places, who can stand against them? Who is going to be able to stop them? And in our own country, there is a power at work against the church, against us. Every day, there's a power, there's a tide. And the tide seems to sweep all about. Before it, that's what tides do, don't they? You know, you can build your sandcastles, but when the tide comes in, and sometimes our churches can seem like sandcastles. Because the tide is coming in relentlessly, the relentless waves promoting euthanasia or trans ideology or abortion. That one seems to have won, doesn't it? Or homosexuality. That seems to have won as well. Who can stand against it? Now, some people do. And praise God for that. And we're commanded to be salt and light to resist the decay in our society. But I'll tell you something, it won't be easy because, you see, Herod has power. Now, that's not new. Chrysostom, great Christian preacher, one of the church fathers back in the 4th century, we have the records, uh, we have many um, accounts of his preaching, and in one of his sermons he says, someone may say, he's looking out in the congregation, says, someone may say this morning, who is there that isn't against us? The very world is against us. Rulers and peoples, our families, and countrymen. You see, he's saying (coughs) there is this enormous tide hostile to the church. Revelation 2.13, Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum, and he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. They're in that town, and frankly, it's Satan on the throne. And Jesus actually says that. And the faithful, in this case, In this Acts 12, verse 5, they gather in earnest prayer for Peter, and they're even there in the middle of the night, where Peter's snoring in prison, they're gathering to pray. And yet, what use is that? What use is that? Yes, yes, back in Acts 5, (coughs) the angels uh, release the, the apostles from prison on that occasion. Wonderfully, but we're in Acts 12. We can often feel that. Yes, in the Bible, certain amazing things happen, but you know, we're here in, we're here in Crowborough. And that sort of thing could happen, but it doesn't. What it might have seemed like that. And that history and the church praying didn't save James. And you know, you thought if James, if God was going to save anybody, why wouldn't he save James? Now, in the world where Herod rules, the weapons of our warfare seem pretty irrelevant and pathetic. 
Herod was also supported. I mean, not just popular opinion, but (coughs) you understand the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, were delighted by his attack uh, on the church. And these men, these are religious leaders who profess to worship the God of the Bible, but they're all on Herod's side. That familiar? Today, there are bishops and denominations and apostate evangelicals who support trans rights and same-sex marriage, and we know what the Synod decided this week, to allow the blessings of same-sex marriages in churches uh, and to require... Uh, and command that churches welcome same-sex couples, I quote, unreservedly and joyfully. Welcome them. When Leviticus 20 verse 13 speaks of it as an abomination, and Revelation 1, uh, Romans 1 speaks of it as dishonorable passions, contrary to nature, and shameless acts. And what God abhors the defiant celebrate in the name of God. (laughs) Happening again, isn't it? Because, you see, Herod and company have power. Herod on the throne for his own gain, by his own power. Thirdly, undeterred by God. Now, the next morning, verse 18, there's rather a delightful phrase. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers. No little disturbance in the prison. The cushy job, and it must have seemed a cushy job, of 16 guards to guard one man suddenly has become a nightmare. The fail-safe security has failed. The unsinkable Titanic has sunk. Peter's gone. Peter's gone. Where is he? What explanation is there? There's no explanation, and there's no sight of Peter. Now, it could just have been a rethink here. Might there have been? I mean, Herod might have reflected. I mean, what he was doing was attacking the church, but just possibly, actually, he's got a bigger opponent than he realizes. But he doesn't realize. Uh, You see, the thing is this, where in a world where God is dethroned, the condition of hearts of people is that even when God does intervene, it's not recognized. Somebody's become a Christian, you say, this is fantastic, this is God who's doing it. Oh, it's just a stage, you know, they'll get over it. It'll pass. It doesn't signify anything. When Jesus acted in the most extraordinary way that divided the world calendar in two permanently, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They did not realize. Ultimately, Herod on the throne and all like him are out of touch with reality. They're they're sleepwalking. They're dreamers. God acts, but Herod puts it down to something and anything else. It's very common, you know. Why does the theory of evolution have such an extraordinary grip in our culture? In the face of the spectacular complexity of nature and the manifest evidence of design. I mean, take birds. Have you ever considered birds? Have you ever investigated the the structure of their bones or the fact that they can fly? I mean, the tiniest little bird and millions of birds and they all seem to be able to do it. I know there are a few flightless birds, but practically all of them can fly. How on earth is that possible? 
I've never found it easy. Well, no one does. You're not a bird. But birds are made and designed so they can. And there's a little bird called the Arctic tern, which flies. Boy, does he fly. 50,000 miles a year he migrates. 50,000 miles a year. And do you know something? He gets to the right place every time. All by chance. Really? I mean, that's deeply unconvincing. It's only hell because people are so out of touch with reality because of the presumptions they want to cling to that they will not accept the reality in front of them. And that's what happens with Herod. (coughs) Verse 19, he investigates. He has the guards executed. He could say, well, that's Roman law, you know. The the guards who let the prisoner go get the penalty due to the prisoner. That shows you what they was going to do to Peter. Did he suspect collusion? Well, I don't think he was necessarily sure at all, but he finds someone else to blame. Because, you see, he won't be undeterred. His worldview is untroubled. It is typical when Herod is on the throne that when God acts in spectacular ways, they are entirely undeterred by God. Fourthly, to his own destruction. For his own gain, by his own power, undeterred by God, to his own destruction. Herod moves on uh, in verse 20 to Caesarea on the coast. uh, And he has a dispute with the people of Tyre and Sidon who are a bit north. And he met them, verse 21, uh, on an appointed day. On an appointed day. Powerful men, and even much less powerful men, like to control the diary. I don't suppose that Herod consulted the people of Tyre and Sidon, you know, what would suit you. I think he just set the day, just as in verse 6, he'd obviously set a day for Peter's execution. It's going to happen then, and this is going to happen then. I rule the world. I am Herod, and I set the times, except I don't. Now, COVID should have brought that home to us. Uh, You see, the truth is that... uh, Our times are out of our hands. Ultimately, they're in God's hands. James 4 says of human plans, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Any of us know what tomorrow will will bring? Well, we'll say we got this in our diary, but you don't actually know, do you? The Bible says, for you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, but otherwise... We might die in the night. None of us knows. But Herod clings to his illusions. And so on the appointed day, verse 21, he took his seat upon the throne and it's beautifully stage managed. And there's quite a lot of swagger here. He put on his royal robes. He's going on his beautiful throne and he delivered an oration. This is, you know, a bit more than just a speech. It's it's a flowery thing and it's intended to impress. Interestingly, the first century Jewish historian Josephus describes this event. And he says it took place in the theatre at Caesarea. The open-air theatre, which has been rebuilt, is a magnificent arena with these wonderful views across the sparkling Mediterranean. And there is Herod. And this is what Josephus says, said, Herod was dressed in a garment of woven silver which gleamed in the rays of the rising sun. His flatterers at once started to address him as a god. 
verse 22, Acts says here, Acts 12 says, um, that they shouted out, the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod loves it. Herod loves it. Verse 23, he did not give God the glory. That's the problem. He hadn't been giving God the glory all the time. And now, in this moment, he sees the glory of God for himself. That's what... That's what happens in the world where God is dethroned. We are seeking and seizing the glory of God for ourselves. It's the root of human sin. Romans 1 says that though God has made plain his existence through creation, men did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's the work of Satan, isn't it? That's the work of Satan. And it finds its climax in the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 who the scriptures describes as one who will who opposes and exalts himself over every so-called God so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, the real God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's what Satan wants to happen in our world. God dethroned. And it's fatal. It's fatal. All who try to seize God's glory are doomed. That doom may await the final day, but in Herod's case... It had an instant reflection and demonstration. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. All the glitz, all the glamour of Herod on the throne and that beautiful um, golden silver garments sparkling in the sun is suddenly undone as the great king writhes on the ground in his death throes, undone by worms. Because actually, see, it wasn't Herod on the throne. All the time, God was on the throne. And that's still true today. So let's look at God on the throne. God is actually, in this chapter, on the throne. God is in every chapter on the throne. God is today on the throne. Whatever has happened and whatever seems to be to the contrary, God is on the throne. First proposition, God's on the throne but it's not always evident. Now presumably, the church prayed earnestly for James's deliverance but God did not intervene. Just as he hadn't when Stephen was stoned, God <coughs> opened the heavens so that Stephen could see the Lord standing to receive him, but he, he didn't stop him being stoned. God, we must get this, God does not necessarily display his sovereignty as we might like, or as we might expect him to, or as we pray that he would, or as he has sometimes in the past, or, as we know that he could, God may not do at all what we expect. And we have to have a category of understanding, as God's people, that in this current fallen world, evil can seem to hold sway even when God is on the throne. I mean, that's what Jesus shows us when he was arrested in the Garden of Eden in Luke 22. He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's the hour of darkness. Actually, God was on the throne, but he says, this is your hour. Three times Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And that means something. Satan, there is a real, satanic, 
power in our world. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 9, very alarming words, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be, he's talking about what's going to happen to believers in the whole era of the church age. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, <coughs> because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Don't be surprised when you can see people who call themselves Christians, who lose their way, who stumble, their love grows cold. 2 Timothy 3, in the last days will come times of difficulty. NIV, in the last days there will be terrible times. And that last day language in Acts 2.17 and Hebrews 1.2 is the language of the whole period between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. Do not be surprised when evil seems to prevail. So what happens to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? We live by faith, understanding and persuaded of the sovereignty of God even then. Just as God was sovereign even as Jesus hung on the cross. What what are the disciples meant to do? Discard the notion of God's sovereignty because Jesus hung on a cross. Or understand that even though Jesus hung on a cross, God was sovereign and indeed was at work in that very circumstance. That's the truth, isn't it? That's the truth. (coughs) You see, we need to have an understanding of the sovereignty of God that is sufficiently robust to include, in this chapter, James' execution and Peter's deliverance. It's not as though God's sovereignty suddenly kicks in in verse 7 when the angel shows up. Ah, God is sovereign. How wonderful. He wasn't before, but he is now. Is that what it's about? No, it's not. God's sovereignty was just as real in verse 2 as in verse 7. And, you know, if we do not have this understanding that evil... uh, will seem to apparently prevail, which is what Jesus said, said. Even when God is on the throne, if we don't have that understanding, we will stumble. We will blame God. We'll say, God, you have let us down. We can no longer sing your praises. We can no longer believe in your sovereignty because look what Herod's up to and no one's stopping him. And we will despair. And if Satan has his way, we'll pack up and go home. We'll close up our churches. And we will make absolutely no sense of the book of Revelation, which predicts the times of most alarming upsurges of evil. Now, we must understand that God is on the throne, even when it's not obvious. Secondly, God is on the throne to bring about his purposes. God will do certain things, and he's absolutely committed to, and Jesus says he will, God will build his church. Through his people, the gospel will go forth. He will make disciples from all nations. He will use his people to be salt and light in dark in the dark world. He will answer the prayers of people in forest fold. Christ will return in glory. He will gather his elect from every place. He will raise us from the dead. Uh, just walking past some of the tombstones. You can see I come to church and look at the tombstones. Well, that's true. Generally, historically, that's where people get buried. You look out of those, at those tombs, you know that one day, 
one day. One day, it's going to be a great place to be because the dead will rise and those who have trusted Christ will rise first and he will do it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes. He will raise the dead and all peoples, the unbelievers as well, will then be raised to face his judgment. And creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But there are some things we need to understand, you see. There are no limits to God's sovereignty. The account of Peter's rescue is incredibly detailed. Did you notice that it was night? And there's an angel. And he brings light. And he wakes Peter uh, in a particular way by striking him on the side. The two chains melt off his hands. The two soldiers in the cells are completely out of it. Um, And they walk out, and the the two soldiers are also standing there, completely out of it. Peter is instructed about his clothes, his sandals, his cloak, and to follow the angel. And as they approach the huge iron gates, you know, this is the most impressive gate, the outside one, it opens by it, opens by itself. Uh, As far as Peter's concerned, he's sleepwalking. He's sleepwalking his way in his dream. That's what he thinks. Uh, But actually, what happens is the angel walks with Peter down one street and suddenly he's gone and Peter suddenly realizes he's not sleepwalking to freedom. He is actually walking to freedom and God has set him free. And he rushes off to the home of someone called Mary, the mother of John Mark, and there's a servant girl who hears him banging on the door and her name is Rhoda. Why do we need to know that? Rhoda. Well, presumably plenty of people in the early church knew Rhoda. Oh, Rhoda. My goodness, there's the old lady on the back row who opened the door to Peter. How exciting. It was real, you see. Uh, And she hears Peter's voice uh, and she's so excited, she doesn't open the door. She goes back to tell the others, this is fantastic. And and they think she's mad. They think she's completely crazy. Uh, Until eventually, Peter gets in. It's easier for Peter to get out of the Roman prison than to get into the door where the Christians are. And there's such a hubbub that Peter motions with his hand. Why do we need to know that? Motions with his hand to tell them, shut up for a moment. I want to tell you what's happened. Why are we given all this detail? Because God is not sovereign in abstract or in theory. He's not just sovereign in sermons. He's sovereign in the real world. He's sovereign in prisons. He does detail. He's sovereign in your home. He's sovereign over your uh, over your children. He's sovereign over buses and taxes and politics and computers and health and travel and war and anything else that any one of us is troubled by this morning. Your God reigns over that too. There's no limits to God's sovereignty. Secondly, God's sovereignty is not tied to our understanding. Many believers praying in the middle of the night and their response to God answering their prayer, verse 15, is, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. That's what they sell, Rhoda. And they come up with a non-physical explanation. This is, you know, pushing the boat out. It's his angel. He's not really there. Just his angel. And when they do actually see him, you know, instead of just being glad, they are utterly amazed. It had been utterly beyond their wildest dreams. Do you know, God is not limited by our wildest dreams or lack of them. Our faith is not a box in which God has to operate so we can say, oh, it didn't happen because we didn't have enough faith. Does God have enough power? 
Yes. God is not confined, so he can only act when we believe enough. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And you'll notice that God also is not a showman. No one other than Peter saw the angel. Sometimes you may wish God would do something so dramatic that all these unbelievers would just fall down and recognize God. Remember Jesus told the parable about the rich man who asks Abraham to send someone from the dead to warn his brothers that they may not go to hell as well? And Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, God isn't a showman because he knows that the showy things don't necessarily change anybody's heart. Someone has risen from the dead and still people don't believe. And God's sovereignty is never suspended. It was God's purpose to call James home to be with Christ, which is better by far. It wasn't some accident. It wasn't that God somehow, you know, let that one drop. It was his direct purpose. And of course, in God's purpose, death is no end at all. Death is rather beginning. Death is rather wonderful. In fact, it is the door to life itself beyond. It is no mistake. I, went, I remember a, 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 a foggy, foggy day in no, of November, years ago now, about 30 more years ago, and a young minister was driving in his car just in, on the edge of Bath, and he, there was a terrible accident, and he was killed. And I spoke to his widow a few days later, And she was telling me that some person had told her that her husband's death was a victory of Satan. Terrible thing. Young man with so much promise and so much potential. Victory of Satan. And I said to her, that cannot be true. Psalm 139. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And it was the day that John went home. And God was in control all the time. He always is. His sovereignty is never suspended. So God was sovereign when James died. God was sovereign to rescue Peter. But you know, some years later, Peter was led out of prison to his own execution. We have to trust God in this matter. How God displays his sovereignty is not under my control. But I know this. He is sovereign. And he does all things well. And he hasn't finished. Last point. God is on the throne to bring about his glory. He hasn't finished. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Hallowed be your name. All over, ever since that day, Christians have been praying, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You prayed that? You prayed that? Of course you prayed. If you're Christians, you prayed that. I expect you to say yes. Okay? Have you prayed, hallowed be your name? Brilliant. I was assuming that. You're just too English. You know, you sit there silently. Hallowed be your name. And it's going on all over the world and has been doing for 2,000 years. Now, that is a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Is it a vain request? No, it's not a vain request. It's going to happen. God is going to bring about his glory. Herod on the throne in executing James is not the end of the story. It's a minor footnote in the progress of God's glorious victory. 
Philippians 2.10, God has so exalted Jesus from the dead that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every expression of dethroning God, whether it's our our own, self-promoting, or it's Herod in the midst of the pomp and acclaim, or every Adolf Hitler wildly saluted by immense crowds, or every Kim Jong-un fated by vast goose-stepping armies, they're all doomed. It's all going to pass away. And just look at the end, verse 23 and 24. The wonderful juxtaposition, verse 23, speaks of sovereign judgment. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. The word struck. That's the word used earlier when the angel struck Peter to wake him, but he struck Herod to kill him. Two strikings, same God, sovereign. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and all God's enemies will perish. But verse 24 says, but... But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God cannot be defeated. Uh, God's word will accomplish everything that God has purposed. Even today, it's spreading and increasing across the world. And when we wrestle with the fact that God doesn't stop this evil or, or, you know, turn upside down some regime that we wish he would have turned upside down years ago and he doesn't do it. The reason he delays ending human rebellion and all the evil, you know why? Well, we're told why. 2 Peter 3, the Lord is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's giving time for the word of God to increase still further. And right this morning, across the world, the word of God is increasing and multiplying. The word of God will go on increasing and multiplying till the day Jesus returns. And that word will be bringing into God's family believers from across the world who are not today yet believers. And one day, every voice will be raised in worship. All the redeemed people of God, all the thousands upon thousands of angels, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them will sing to him who sits on the throne and always did. To him be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Our God reigns. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you're on the throne, not us. That you're on the throne, not those who seem to be powerful at the moment in this world. And all the forces that seem to signal the victory of Satan. This is not the last word. They one day will all fall before the glorious victory of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would live by faith, deeply persuaded of the sovereign reliability, faithfulness, and authority of our God who does all things well. Lord, may we live in that confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song that expresses (coughs) this sort of confidence that the passage is about. I've got the words printed out here. I hope they're the same ones that come up there. But this one says, Though nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king. Ah, good. 
reigning over all. That's what we've been thinking about. And that's what we're going to stand and rejoice in. nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. Lord, we worship you, the one king who reigns forever and one day will bring in fully our salvation and the kingdom to come. We trust you, we worship you and we want to rejoice in you in the face of everything in this world, now and forever till the day we join in the endless praises of glory. Amen.